you would turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. I'm going to try to just quickly uh, set the stage for where we stopped last time. We were looking at the passage beginning in verse 36. Now, in Daniel 11, starting in verse 1 down through verse 35, uh, we have the first few verses that have to do with the uh, kingdom of Persia. And uh, then very quickly, uh, the rest of the chapter up through verse 35 uh, continually talks about the kings of the north and the kings of the south, which is going to be the Seleucid kingdom in Syria, which is uh, one of those four areas that uh, came into existence following the, the death, the sudden death of Alexander the Great and his four generals take over. And so just above Israel uh, is the Seleucid kingdom in Syria. Just below Israel is the Ptolemaic uh, kingdom in Egypt. And what we saw in verses, uh, in, in uh, chapter 11 up through verse 35 was that uh, just a series of back and forth, back and forth between these two nations that are in conflict with each other, wars back and forth, back and forth. And of course, as all this happens, who's sitting right in the middle of it, uh, but poor little Israel uh, being affected by the ongoing conflict over the uh, several hundred years. And so um, when we came to verse 36, Commentaries, uh, all, just, about, just about all commentators agree that there is a change in subject. It says in verse 36, the king. It's not the king of the north. It's not the king of the south. And then when you look down to verse 40, we see that the king of the south shall attack him. And the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind. And so we, 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 we get the sense, we understand even just from the text that verse 36 is stepping off into uh, another subject, another king, another time, uh, later in history, following uh, the days of, uh, of uh, especially Antiochus Epiphanes, who in verses uh, 29 through 35 in particular, do his terrible, terrible, horrible deeds in desolating uh, Israel and the temple in Jerusalem. And so uh, we're passing on from Antiochus when we come to verse 36. And I suggested to you last time, I'm going to write the name up here again. I suggested to you that there were three uh, general views of who starts to be the subject in verse 36. If you're a futurist, like a dispensationalist, then it's the, uh, it's the Antichrist at some future point in time. If uh, another very prominent view is that it is, that it is the Herods and the Herodian dynasty. And we know that when we come to the beginning of the Gospels and Jesus Christ is born, and who is it that's going to try to kill him and kill all the babies around Bethlehem? It is Herod trying to protect his throne being paranoid is, uh, I think you made reference to that uh, this morning, uh, Herod being paranoid uh, in uh, that his throne was going to be taken from him. And then I suggested, um, I suggested last time a character that's not as well known, 
um, that I think is probably the best ch choice of who this king is, and that is John of Giscula uh, that we're going to talk about now. We started talking about him briefly last time, but we'll talk about him a little bit more now. So that, those are the possibilities. Now, the way we addressed this last time was we looked at the book of Daniel and, and various things that indicate that starting in verse 36 up to chapter 12, verse 3, that indicate that the time period in 36, 37, 38, 39 actually ties to historical events in the first century and that it's leading up in chapter 12 verses 1, 2, 3, which, 1, 2, and 3, which I hope we're going to get to tonight. We, we lead up to the, the coming of Jesus Christ into this world in the beginning of his kingdom. And so the time period is not some future time that is even future to us, some unknown time, future over 2,000 years from the time, over 2,500 years or more from the time that Daniel wrote. And so I suggested that, that this answer just doesn't fit at all with the text and what we see there that indicates that this all happens in the first century A.D. Then I was telling you what some of the things are that commend Herod to being the king in those verses. But then we also see, the, like when we come to verse 40 and following, that when it starts talking about the king of the north and the king of the south attacking this king, Herod is actually an ally uh, to the Romans. The, these two people at this point in verse 36, the king of the north and the king of the south, are actually both Romans. It's Roman governor coming up from the south. It's Vespasian and his son Titus coming down from the north. That's who is being referred to there in verse 40. And so Herod was not attacked by them. He was not. And so it starts to break down that Herod fits the, the information that we have when we start getting to verse 40 and following. And so we'll see in just a moment how John Giscula, I'll suggest, uh, does fit with these things. Let me, let me remind you of the scene, and then we'll jump ahead a few verses to where we stopped last time. In around A.D. 66, there are many anti-Roman rebels throughout the Roman Empire. In Israel, they're called the, the Zealots, and they are primarily located in the area of Galilee, although they're all over uh, the land of Israel. And the Romans brutally put down, beginning in AD 66, the worst of the rebellions in the area of Galilee. 100,000 people were killed or sold into slavery, and what happens is the people who escape, including the rebels who escape, do what? They go to Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem becomes this collecting point where all around Jerusalem, the Roman, uh, the Roman armies are going from village to village to village, from town to town, from area to area, and they're cleaning up. And all the people, especially the rebels, are congregating there in Jerusalem. And so you can see where this is headed. This is headed where you have all of these violent people, you have all of this conflict being pushed down in Jerusalem, and the Romans are, are circling in. Uh, they're they're, they're going to put them in the noose, and, uh, and, and you can see what is just looming ahead, this disaster uh, that is being set up to happen. 
To make things worse, the city is divided among three rival warring factions. So inside Jerusalem itself, you have Simon Bargiori with 15,000 militia who is defending the, the, the position of the Sadducees, that group of people in, in Jerusalem. You have two factions of zealots. You have John of Giscula is one, the leader of one group, and another group is, re, is led by a man named Eliezer. So inside of Jerusalem, you have all of this war going on between these factions. I think I mentioned this last time, that all of the moderate Jewish leaders that were on the scene in AD 66 were dead by AD 68. And not one of them died at the hands of the Romans. They were all killed by fellow Jews. Basically, the situation was this. If you weren't radical enough, you got killed. You, if you weren't zealous enough in your, uh, in your, uh, in your attitude towards Rome and to, in the resistance to Rome, then uh, you were uh, just taken off to the scene. You were not tolerated in Jerusalem at this time. Now, in verse 36, it says, The king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. And so what we have in these verses is a description I suggest, suggest to you of John. Uh, John... Um, John in these verses is one who takes, uh, he takes sovereign control over the faction of zealots that he's uh, associated with. He becomes the guy who uh, bars no resistance, no, no, uh, there's no one to challenge his authority, and he is calling the shots in uh, this particular group. Now, as the, as the revolts, as the, uh, as the revolutions are going on, the rebellions among the various groups, the factions that are fighting, as all this is going on, what happens is they end up taking parts of the city. And where John and his people end up being is in the area of the temple. And so the temple actually becomes his headquarters. Uh, he, he goes into the places that are the sacred places, our verse talks here about how he raises himself above uh, God, how he exalts himself. Um, uh, that, that is what we see John doing. He plunders the temple. He takes the, uh, he takes the riches of the temple and uses that to finance his campaign and his men. And, uh, and so he, he misuses uh, all of the uh, temple uh, furnishings uh, for his own purposes. And so he takes those things uh, to uh, in in disregard uh, to their sacredness and to uh, to his God. Now John it also says in our verses in our verse there in thirty six that there's a statement there that says that uh, let me see, let me put my finger on it is in verse thirty seven and it says that and to one beloved by women and that phrase is described is actually translated in most versions as uh, something along these lines, did not give heed to the desire of women. And the idea there is, is that whoever this person is, that's this king, he has no regard to women and what they desire. Some people think that the desire of women 
is the Messiah in a Jewish context. So that's one view that some uh, propose. What we see in the case of John is this. He was noted for his abandonment of women and children, most notably in the middle of his flight from, from Titus to Jerusalem. So he's in Giscula, Titus comes, he attacks, Gis, he attacks Giscula, and John escapes in the night, and he escapes with many people from the cities. And basically what John does is when it looks like that the Romans are going to catch up, he just leaves the women and children behind. And what happens to the women and children as the Romans catch up with them uh, is, not, uh, is something that was, uh, was, uh, ends up in the slaughter and destruction of many of those people. John abandoned them and used them basically as just a shield uh, to cover his escape. And so he did that, but it was, it was worse than that with John and his men. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he also allows his Galilean contingent to rape women for sport. They also indulge in effeminate practices and, and, and into the, the imitation of the passions of women. And we won't go into, into discussions of what all that is, but it was a horrible scene. Basically, John and his men are the most depraved and ruthless and worthless group uh, that we can imagine. Let's look at verse 38 and following. Verse 38 and 39. And he shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor, and he shall make them rulers over many, and shall divide the land for a price. Now what we see John doing, first of all, almost all commentators, regardless of their view of any of these views, about this passage, uh, believe that the, that the uh, idea here in verses 38 and 39 is, is that it is a reference to the worship of just military power and, brawl, and just raw brute force. That, that is the God of this king that is described in these verses. And we certainly see John do that as he worships military power and the power of the sword he invests uh, his resources and the resources of the people and the resources of the temple uh, in pursuing those ends. He quite literally serves his God of military power with precious metals and stones and desirable things from Jehovah's temple. Note in, uh, in back in Daniel 11:31 that when Antiochus Epiphanes was doing his worse in Jerusalem some years earlier, that it says in verse 31 that forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress. And so there, the temple area in Jerusalem is described by those two terms, the temple and the fortress. And so commentators believe that the strongest fortress here in verse 39 is a reference uh, to the temple. Of course, John and his Elliots are going to convert the uh, temple of God into their fortress and refuge uh, from any other outbreaks of violence in the city from the other factions and make the holy place the headquarters of their tyranny. Now in verse 40, it says that the, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him and the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow 
and pass through. Now this is a description of the, in kind of in summary fashion, of the invasion by Vespasian and his son Titus, the king of the north, and of Tiberius, Julius Alexander, who was the Roman governor from the south. And so these two groups of Romans are coming together to attack uh, this king. Uh, and that's what verse 40 is introdu introducing us to. Verses 41 and 42. I'm going to move quickly because I want to get to chapter 12, if possible, and talk about those verses a little bit. Verses 41 and 42. He shall come into the glorious land. And by the way, he is going to be Vespasian and his son Titus. The last phrase in the previous verse uh, is the he there is talking about Vespasian, uh, the Roman uh, general, and, later, and then his son with him, and later his son. Verse 41, He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, in the main part of the Amorites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Now what we see in verses 41 and 42 is a description of the campaign through Galilee and Judea that results in the city being filled with all these refugees and warring factions. Among them is John, who is routed from Giscula and flees to Jerusalem, taking the temple uh, for his headquarters. Vespasian marks, marches into Galilee in AD 67, and he is approaching Jerusalem by about the mid-AD 69. Tens of thousands did, in fact, fall, as our text tells us. One incredibly specific prophecy has to do with Edom, Moab, and Ammon. You'll see that uh, there in the text uh, in verse 41 at the end of the verse. We would have expected that they have, would have been caught up in the Roman actions as the Romans went from community to community and from nation to nation around Jerusalem to clean out all the nests where the Jewish rebels were. But what actually happens is that these three groups, uh, they become allies with Vespasian and they send troops to his cause and they actually do escape, as our verse says, his hand. And so it is quite, a, uh, it is quite an extraordinary little detail that of all the people around Jerusalem on all sides, there are these three little groups that actually don't get attacked and routed by the Roman armies and these three that are actually listed for us, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. It says in our verses here that the Jews in Egypt did not escape. Tiberius unleashed two legions on the rebellious Jewish community in Alexandria. Let me read a quote to you. It says, Permission was given to the soldiers not merely to kill the rioters, but to plunder their property and burn their houses. The troops rushed to the quarter of the city called Delta, where the Jews were concentrated and executed their orders, but not without bloodshed on their own side, for the Jews closing their ranks and putting the best armed among their number uh, in the front offered a prolonged resistance. But when once they gave away, wholesale carnage ensued. Death in every form was theirs. Some were caught in the plain. Others were driven into their houses, to which the Romans set fire after stripping them of their contents. There was no pity for infancy, no respect for years. All ages fell before their murderous career until the whole district was deluged with blood 
and the heaps of corpses numbered 50,000. And so there was a, a terrible massacre in Alexandria, Egypt. And of course our verse tells us that Egypt uh, shall not escape. And that is exactly what happens. Verse 43. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. When Vespasian learns in April of AD 69 that there has been a change in the emperor in Rome, he was declared by his commanders and soldiers to be emperor. And Tiberius there, there in Egypt uh, swears allegiance to him. Vespasian then sends forces to seize Rome, and he himself goes down to Egypt to take control of the empire's huge grain supplies and wealth that was there in Egypt. And that's what our, our verse says, that the ruler, he's going to become the ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things in Egypt. And that is actually what Vespasian does. His men are successful in Rome, and he is declared emperor by the Roman Senate in December AD 69, and he establishes the Flavian dynasty that will rule for 27 years. Now, that year, AD 69, is called the year of four emperors because when, when Nero dies, by the way, when Nero dies, this is why he died, he commits suicide and he cuts his throat. You know, Nero was a crazy man, I mean, we know that. And, uh, and so that was how he dies. And it's, not, it's known as the year of four emperors because between then and December when Vespasian becomes emperor, there are three other guys that are, that are emperor for just like a, a month or a few weeks and, uh, and, until Vespasian actually prevails. Now just as a side note, Vespasian will build uh, what was known as the Flavian Amphitheater. Do anybody have any idea what that is? The Flavian Amphitheater? What might we call it today? If you think of Rome, what's one of the first things you think about? The Colosseum. And that's where the Colosseum comes from. It's going to be built by Vespasian. Uh, that's going to be one of the things that he does there in Rome later in later years. And then the reference there at the end of the verse, Libya and Nubia, which is where the Cushites are, are one of the first groups down near Egypt to actually submit to the new emperor. So 43 very accurate statement of what happens. Verses 44 and 45. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to an end with none to help him. Now in verses 44 and 45, he hears news from Jerusalem, which is north and east, from Alexandria that troubles him and he sends his son Titus to put an end to the war and rebellion in Jerusalem. They've already been up there trying to clean out uh, the, the little uh, pockets of resistance and rebellion and, uh, but still there's trouble up there and he sends Titus to severely deal with the situation in Jerusalem. Titus encamps exactly where verse 45 says that he will. That is where the Roman armies uh, first locate when they arrive on the scene. That last statement in, in verse 45 that says in our version, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. I think it should be better understood as this. 
He shall come to the end point with no one helping him, meaning Titus will finish this job himself uh, without aid from other nations or other peoples. Titus is going to go up there because it could be translated as not the end as far as the end of him dying or the end of his time, but it can be the end of his mission or it can even be in reference to uh, uh, the mountain. It actually can actually be the peak of the mountain itself that could be referred to. So I think that's probably how we should understand that verse. Now when all this happens, the temple is under John's, that is this John's, control. Titus extends a promise to John, communicated to him by Josephus, that he would permit the sacrifices to be restored and would spare John and the temple. Josephus blames the destruction of the temple ultimately on John's refusal to cooperate in any way with Titus to allow the sacrifices to be restored or to spare the temple. And so I mentioned last time that the destruction of Israel, of Jerusalem, was primarily done by the Jewish people, Jew against Jew. And it is only at the very end that the Romans come in and just put an end uh, to the affair. When the, Rom when the Romans resumed their attack on the rebels, first the Jews and then the Romans engaged in burning the temple porticos. The Jews were eventually blockaded in the inner temple and the Romans were forced to destroy the temple in order to bring it into the war. Vespasian did not want, I mean not Vespasian, but Titus, uh, his son, who is the general now, Titus did not want to destroy the temple. And he was very sad and miserable and melancholy, the records say, about what he was seeing in Jerusalem as Jews were were in horrible conditions for the Jews in the city. And he saw this beautiful, glorious, wonderful city being destroyed. Uh, he, he, he actually tried, Titus did, to not have it come uh, to that end. But it was the, it was the Jews who would not cooperate uh, that pressed the issue to its final conclusion as we know it today. Now, I'm going to go to chapter 12, verse 1. Does anybody have any questions about any of that? Describing the campaign and what happened and how it's come to it is coming to an end here. We come to verse chapter twelve, verse one, and it says, "At that, let me read verses one through three actually." And at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, note with me in, verse, in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, that first phrase, at that time. Now, I would suggest to you when we look at these possible answers for what's going on in 11.36 through 12.3, that that is a tremendous problem for this view that it's referring to things in the way, way future distance because the, the statement itself at that time indicates that it's going to be in the context of 
these other things that are going on historically in the era of AD, the first century AD, it's going to be at that time when all these things are going on that these events are going to happen and these things are going to be fulfilled. So I suggested that's a very important and strong statement for us as we understand these things. Now, the next statement in our verse is, shall arise Michael. Now, over in Daniel 10, in verse 13, we saw Michael. It says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And so we have the reference there to the fact that Michael is a powerful angel, and that he comes and he helps uh, in, in, the, in the battle that is going on, the spiritual battle that is going on uh, between uh, the holy angels and the, the angels that are the angels of the kingdom of Persia, that are the wicked angels, the evil angels that are, that, are, uh, that are the angels for those kingdoms, in that case Persia. Then we see him again in verse 21 there in chapter 10. And I will tell you what is described in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So there Michael uh, is indicated to have a special relationship to God's people. The way there was a prince of Greece that was an evil angel that was connected with Greece and that nation. And there was the evil angel that was the prince of Persia. And of course under these princes of course there are who knows what kind of multitudes of evil angels working under them for their causes. But uh, we see that Michael is especially associated with God's people. Now I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 12 because this is going to do two things for us. Revelation chapter 12 is going to give us a, I suggest, a powerful confirmation that we are thinking correctly about who these people are and when this is happening. And also, it's going to make a statement to, to us about, about Michael. Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour her. Let's just pause for a moment there. And, and who is it obvious to us who that is? It is the Lord Jesus Christ being brought into this world. The woman is Israel who over time is led up to the fullness of time. And now the time has finally come. And here, birth is actually being given to the long-promised Messiah. Satan is there, ready to pounce on him. The first time that happens is with Herod, trying to kill the babies around Bethlehem. And we're going to see throughout Jesus' life that there are going to be occasions where people are seeking his life as Satan continues to try to do exactly what we have here in our verses. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Let's pause again. We've already seen this in the book of Daniel back in chapter 8. Where we saw uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, ascend up to heaven. And, uh, and appear there before the ancient of days. Uh, uh, 
uh, a passage that is paralleled very specifically in Revelation chapter 5. We looked at that earlier. But here we have reference to it yet again, that he is called up to God and to his throne, the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ following his resurrection from the dead. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. I'm going to stop there because we could read through the rest of the chapter. But we know there's this battle in heaven and we see that Michael is on the scene and when is this happening? This has come to its peak. It comes to its climax at the time of our Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world. It is at his first advent, his first coming, that, that the, the, the war that has been raging since Adam, that we've seen over and over and over through the centuries, is going to come to its true climax as the Lord Jesus Christ comes into this world. And we see Michael and his actions here on behalf of the holy angels. Uh, I want to draw your attention to the end of our verse 6 where it talks about that the woman, that is Israel, is going to flee or, or God's people are going to flee into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by, by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, I think we know that 1,260 days is the same thing as times, times, and half, and half a time. It is the same thing as, uh, as uh, 42 months that we see these various uh, statements in, in uh, Daniel and in Revelation. And so... What this is telling us is that in some way God's people are going to be protected during this period of intense uh, persecution that's going to come in the future. Now this is what we know about that. Eusebius writing about 325 A.D. says this, But the people of the church in Jerusalem have been commanded by revelation vouchsafed to approved men there before the war to leave the city and to dwell in a certain town of Perea called Pella. Now this sect of Nazarenes exists, uh, exists in uh, Syria and in, and in Decapolis in the district of Pella. From thence it originated after the migration from Jerusalem of all the disciples who resided at Pella. Christ having instructed them to, to leave Jerusalem and retire from it on account of the impending siege, it was owing to this council that they went away, as I have said, to reside for a while at Pella. So what we, what we know is that the Christians left Jerusalem just before the horrible destruction that is coming comes on the scene, and they escape that, and the Christians are spared. And they do it by going into the wilderness area uh, at, the, at the little community of Pella, which is on the other side, which is north, and then across the Jordan River uh, from Jerusalem. Another ancient writer, Epiphanius, in 375 A.D., makes a reference to the Nazarene sect exists uh, in, in Decapolis near the region of, of Pella. That is where the sect began when all the disciples were living in Pella after they moved from Jerusalem, since Christ told them to leave Jerusalem and withdraw because it was about to be besieged. For this reason, they settled in Perea, and there, as I said, they lived. That is where the Nazarene sect began. So another reference to that. 
Commentator Albert Barnes says, it is said that there is a reason to believe that not one Christian perished in the destruction of that city, God having in various ways secured their escape so that they fled to Pella, where they dwelt when the city was destroyed. John Gill commented, it is remarked by several interpreters in which Josephus takes no notice with surprise that Cestius Gallus, having advanced with his armor to Jerusalem and besieged it, on a sudden, without any cause, raised the siege and withdrew his army when the city might have been easily taken. What he's referring to there is about a year and a half before the final destruction comes when Titus enters the city and actually does besiege the city and take it. They, there was an opportunity to the Romans. It looked like that they, they had the city taken. And suddenly the commander stopped and withdrew. And it was during that pause that the Christians were able to escape. And he's making note here of the fact that that, that is what happened. And then he says that they took the opportunity. This opportunity was given to the Christians to make their escape, which they accordingly did and went over to Jordan, as Eusebius says, to a place called Pella. So then when Titus came a few months later, there was not a Christian in the city. And then Charles Spurgeon says this, the Christians in Jerusalem and the surrounding towns and villages in Judea availed themselves of the first opportunity of eluding the Roman armies and fled to the mountain city of Pella in Perea, where they were preserved from the general destruction which overthrew the Jews. There was no time to spare before the final investment of the guilty city. The man on the housetop could not come down to take anything out of his house. The man in the field could not return back to take his clothes. They must flee to the mountains in the greatest haste the moment that they saw Jerusalem compassed about with armies. Luke 21, 20. So he's quoting there from Luke 21, 20. Look with me at Matthew chapter 21. Because Luke 21, 20 is one place that we have reference to this. But I want you to see when in all these things say Christ said, leave the city. They were warned by Christ to leave the city. When did that happen? Well, we see it in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 15. Actually, it's not 21. It must be 24. I've got the wrong reference. It's Matthew 25, isn't it? It's Matthew. Okay. No, it's Matthew 21. It's Matthew. I've got uh, 20, but I've got 21 in my notes, which is not correct. So, okay, it's going to be uh, Matthew 24 instead of Matthew 21. Sorry. Matthew 24, 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now let me pause for just a moment here. This is another reason why I think that John Giscula might be the man that our verses are talking about. Because when you see the, abomina the abomination of desolation, meaning the temple being desolated, and you're to flee, that is before Titus has entered the city. That is before Titus has, at the very, very bitter end, uh, driven uh, John and his men out of the temple uh, at the very, very end of the whole process, uh, I, I would suggest to you that this indicates, again, it, it, it might very well be uh, that it is John Giskill and his uh, men 
in the temple that have desolated it. I think that is actually the case. Let's read on. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. There he is. Do not believe it. By the way, let me pause again. Eliezer, Simon, John, all these people are claiming to be the deliverer, the hero of Israel. And people are following this faction. And people are following this faction. And people are following this faction. And they're fighting against each other and killing each other. And this is what they were warned against. For false Christs and false prophets shall arise and perform great signs and wonders. So as to lead astray of possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So Jesus warned his people. He, 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 he said to people, when you see this happening, flee. And don't, don't think about it. Do it immediately when you have the opportunity. And that is exactly what we see happening. Now, it is interesting that we read both in Daniel and in Matthew language that is like this. We just read this in Matthew where it says, verse 21, Then there will be great tribulations such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now, people that hold this particular view of eschatology uh, are, are always talking about the great tribulation. I know you've heard that term. Christ is telling us here that the great tribulation that's going to be the worst of ever and will never be that bad again is going to happen with the destruction of Jer Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, I want to read to you, and this is all we'll have time to do tonight, but let me read to you uh, a couple of passages. I, this is from Long amount of material, just condensing it down into uh, a few passages. But just listen to these several things. Part of this is direct quotes from Josephus, and part of it is where I've taken a quote from somebody who's writing about the situation and uh, describing what Josephus was talking about. He says this, By now, the famine was beginning to bite inside the city so that starvation was becoming widespread among non-combatants, some of whom were selling everything they had just uh, for just a single measure of grain, wheat if they were rich, barley if they were poor. People would devour it uncooked in a dark corner or pull it out of the fire and swallow it half-baked. Wives started snatching food from their husbands, children from their parents, and still more pitiable, mothers from their babies even when it was obvious that they were dying from lack of nourishment. The defenders had to eat. The defenders had to eat if they were to fight. And after the shops ran out of grain, they broke into houses, which they ransacked. When any flour was found, they tortured the owner for having hid it. If they saw a dwelling that was locked, 
They at once suspected those inside of having a meal and rushed inside, almost pulling morsels out of the diner's throats. Old men were beaten to make them disgorge food, and women were dragged around by the hair of their head. They sometimes tortured people to make them reveal where just a single loaf of bread or a handful of barley was concealed. Those who looked well-fed could expect such treatment. But the emaciated were left alone, although the rebels robbed the pitiful, the pitiful creatures who crept through the Roman centuries and gathered wild plants and herbs. Wealthy men were methodically marked down and killed, hauled in front of one of the two leaders, that would be John or the other faction, uh, the, the two rebel factions. Uh, they would be hauled before one of the two leaders. Some were falsely accused of scheming and then executed, while others were slaughtered after being charged with conspiring to surrender the city to the Romans. The pair drank the blood of their, their fellow countrymen and divided their carcasses between them. That's a quote from Josephus. No other city has ever had to endure horrors like this. No generation has ever existed that was more stained by crime. These were the people who destroyed our city. Even though the Romans had to take all the blame after winning the melancholy victory, these men who seemed to think that the temple was burning too slowly when they were to watch it burning from the upper city, they were not going to shed a single tear, although even the Romans would be overwhelmed by sadness at the sight. Famine was raging more terribly than ever, devouring entire houses and families. The upper rooms were full of dying women with their infants, and the lanes were filled by old men who had already died. Bloated with hunger, youths and children wandered like shadows around the marketplaces, remaining on the ground wherever they dropped dead. Famished men were too weak to bury their kindred, while anyone who was still strong enough did not bother because there were so many corpses and because they themselves expected to die soon. The few people who had made some sort of effort to intern the dead expired while doing so. In other words, they're trying to bury people. They die in the process of burying people. While others got into their shrouds to await death. In other words, instead of waiting for it to die, if somebody prepared them for burial, they, they dressed themselves for it, awaiting their own death. Amidst all this misery, there was little weeping or wailing. Starvation had killed all sense of affection so that the slowly dying gazed with dry eyes and open mouths at anyone who passed away before them. A deep silence resembling darkness reigned throughout the city as though to proclaim the presence of death. Still more dreadful were the robbers who broke into the houses that had become tombs, plundering the dead bodies, laughing as they stole the clothes off them. They tried out their swords on corpses and to test their blade sharpness ran through dying men who were still breathing but refused to kill anyone who begged them to finish them off. All these citizens who died from the famine drew their last breath with eyes firmly fixed on the temple trying to ignore the rebels. Finding the stench that arose from so many dead bodies all over the city almost unbearable, at first the rebel leaders gave orders for them to be buried at public expense. But when the sheer number made it impossible, uh, they then threw them over the walls into the ravines below. So they started throwing them over the city walls uh, into the ravines outside of the city. Just one more section. And the reason I'm reading this is because our text tells us in Daniel and in Matthew that this was the greatest tribulation and trouble 
that people would ever endure it. It would not ever be this bad again. There would be nothing that was going to reach this, uh, this uh, level of horribleness again. Josephus then tells us of the most appalling of all of his grim stories. A woman of rich and distinguished family called Mary, the daughter of Eleazar, had fled from Perea on the other side of the Jordan to take refuge in Jerusalem. So she had done the opposite of what the Christians did. She came from where Pella was to Jerusalem uh, while the Christians were escaping from Jerusalem to Pella. It looks as though she belonged to Josephus' own class, which was an added reason for his finding her history so shocking. Just to sort to arise, arouse their hostility, not only was she robbed of all property she had brought with her by the tyrants, Simon and John, but their bodyguards made a point of stealing any food she was able to find. And although she shrieked curses at them at the top of her voice, they did not bother to kill her. In the end, the famine pierced through her very bowels and marrow, sending Mary out of her mind. She killed the baby that was sucking at her breast, roasted the body, devoured half of it. Attracted by the smell of cooking, some troops rushed into her house, so she showed them the remains. She said, this is my child, and that's what I have done. Eat as much as you would like, since I have had enough already. You men can't possibly be more fastidious than a woman or more tender-hearted than a mother. But if you don't want to eat from religious scruples and won't accept my sacrifice, then you can leave what's left to me. The troops ran from the house in horror, leaving Mary to her meal. The story spread throughout the city. Everyone shuddered as though he or she had committed the crime. All longed for death envying anyone who had died before hearing so horrible a tale. The news was so, of this ghastly incident reached the Romans, brought either by deserters or by jo Josephus' spies, the result being that most of them hated the Jews more than ever. Titus swore before the gods that he was not responsible. He also declared that he was going to bury the abomination of a mother eating her own child beneath the ruins of Judea, and that he would not leave standing on the face of the earth a city in which mothers fed in such a way. And that is precisely what Titus Caesar, that is his son, and his men uh, were about to do. And so you get the picture when we say it was the great tribulation. It was the most horrible times. And this picture that we have of the destruction of Jerusalem is a very specific message to us. It is the message that judgment ultimately comes. And when it does, it is ugly. And it is horrible. And if we have any casual ideas about what judgment will be like for those that are not believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, then look at what happened in the last days in Jerusalem and you will see what judgment is going to be like, how thorough it's going to be, how horrible it's going to be. And it is a picture for us in sober history of what the spiritual reality of judgment will be. It couldn't be more sobering, I would suggest. Well, that's not the end of the story. Because the very next thing that we're going to read is, but at that time your people shall be 
delivered. <laughs> and that's where we will uh, pick up, Lord willing. And we'll have one more time, and we'll finish with Daniel uh, next time as we look at the rest of Daniel chapter 12. Any questions about that? And about that horrible scene? Okay. Is worth pointing out. People might wonder, I mean, why, why is that the great tribulation and not something in the future? But I mean, it makes sense when so much of the Old Testament had been 1,500 years of Israel breaking the covenant, breaking the covenant, God being patient, and he, he sent them into exile. And, and then he sent all these prophets who said, don't, you know, you're getting another chance. You're back in your homeland. You know, trust God this time. And so it's all building up to this great ultimate um, climactic moment. <clears throat> when God's judgment of his own people is even more severe than his judgment was against the enemies of Israel um, because they had a special relationship with God and mm -hmm. they the so Right, exactly right. Any other comments or observations? I got a question. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So I've read Well, I'm going to give you the 30-second answer, and we can talk about this later, even, even next time when we, when we meet if we need to. But the, the, the quick answer is that there was, a, there was a little horn who was going to be an enemy to God's people and a blasphemer against God in the time of the Greek Empire. That was Antiochus Epiphanes that you just mentioned that we read about in verses 35 and, and earlier. Then there is the little horn who is going to do the very same thing in the days of Rome. I'm suggesting that it's John of Giscula that is the primary culprit there, although uh, Titus could be described in that same way. And, and what we see in the scriptures is we see these prophetic things that Daniel says about the future take on a trajectory that extends into the future. So when we go past... AD 70 and we go and we're reading the book of Revelation and we're reading about the future they pick up these same symbols these are all things that the great tribulation, the little horn the, uh, the beast that we have in Daniel and then we have it in Revelation, all those things are, are symbols and ideas that God uses to project out for us what we're seeing so that when we see North Korea or we see Nazi Germany or we see in some cases, I hate to say it, the United States of America being a beast against Christians, then we, 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 we know that we can view that in this context of what we've seen in history and also in predictive prophecy back in the days of Daniel. And so that's the short answer, if that makes sense. Okay? All right. Anything else? You want to add to that? Uh, no, I mean, I think, you know, it's that idea that uh, tribulation, um, I, I don't think you could say to the Christians in those camps in North Korea that it could be any worse than it is for them. 
generation have been able to go to a book like Revelation and to see that it was speaking to them in their time, in their place. And, uh, and the message is Christ wins in the end. And that's true for all of us. Yep. Okay. I will say this for those of you who are interested in such things, that whether you think things are going to get better in the future, whether you think they're going to get worse as we go toward the end of time, is how you become a post-millennialist or an millennialist. So y'all can just think about that. Let's close with the word of prayer.